0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 2nd, 2021, and I've got my regular crew back with me now that this, with the summer now coming to an end. But even with the final holiday weekend of the season approaching here in the U.S., the FDA still gave us plenty to talk about. First up, we're going to look at the surprise retirements of two senior vaccine leaders at the FDA. Marion Gruber and Phil Kraus, the director and deputy director of CBER's Office of Vaccine Research and Review, I think it's safe to say shocked the FDA world by announcing on August 30th that they plan to retire. Gruber will leave October 31st and Kraus will leave in November. The departures mean that CBER director Peter Marks will be taking over as acting director of OVR while the agency searches for a replacement. But the intrigue of this story increased when an ex-senior FDA official suggested that the two decided to leave because of disagreements with the CDC and the White House over decision making and COVID vaccine booster shots. Apparently, they thought CDC and the ACIP were making decisions that the FDA alone should be responsible for and that the White House got ahead of them in announcing that they wanted to start giving booster shots on September 20th. We're going to get into the booster shot issue in a minute, but I wanted to throw it out to the panel to get your take on these departures. Of course, there are others at the FDA working on vaccines who are extremely capable, but th- this is a huge blow for the agency, right? It
1: certainly seems like it for, to me particularly. Again, you're not losing one person. <laughs> you're losing two key top people at the same time in the middle of probably the most, you know, important moment for vaccines probably in their, you know, in the time they've been at the agency. So Since
0: it's polio um, probably.
1: <laughs> and uh, obviously the kind of speculation around why they left um, is, I think, you know, t- doesn't sort of add to the kind of the public perception and confidence, you know, around the whole vaccination process and, you know, the booster process and, you know, what's going on with Potentially vaccines for younger children right now. Just the timing of it is is um, quite quite awkward, given you know the major decisions coming down the pike.
2: Yeah, it's uh, um, certainly a sort of an eyebrow raiser, and uh, you know one can certainly uh, imagine just how uh, exhausted they are after uh, all these uh, this you know sort of over over a year sort of working on uh, um, all these uh, issues, but it. Uh, um, it can't uh, be a, uh, a morale booster for uh, for anyone else at the agency thinking that sort of these two uh, um, luminaries aren't going to be working on these uh, these, uh, these tough problems anymore.
0: Yeah, and you know, I I kept trying to to not immediately jump to conclusions when all this reporting started to come in. You know, that like maybe maybe they legitimately just you know wanted to retire, maybe they wanted to do something else. But it, it you know it's. I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's hard also to ignore kind of the all the the politics going on around this, and you know it's been swirling around the FDA now for a year and a half, you know, over two administrations, and you know that it it just seems like that you know the the, the agency the, the way the agency likes to approach some of these some of these things just uh, doesn't I don't know if it sit well is the right kind of phrasing. It just seems like there's kind of there's a, fundamental disagreements with kind of the the scientific approach to that, you know, that, uh, that that the scientists like to take that's kind of measured and stepwise. And we'll have an answer when we see enough data that gives us an answer and kind of these, uh, you know, the uh, others in the, you know, that are trying to work on this problem, get us out of this pandemic that are trying to you know, stay ahead of the virus as Jeff Zients likes to, likes to point out and, and, you know, make plans ahead of time and not, you know, and, and try and, you know, try and, but, you know, provide a little more of a pull. I don't know. That's kind of a rambling answer, but it, it just seems, it, it just seems hard to kind of navigate that, you know, over and over and over with seemingly every single decision you have to make. Yeah. I
2: think the, you know, the, 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 the potential for tension there is, uh, unavoidable and, uh, um, you know, like like you know, everything in in life, the uh, um, decisions involve trade-offs, and sort of the more important, the more uh, the more painful the uh, the trade-offs seem to be uh, um, for folks. I mean, this is you know, if this uh, this these departures are driven by disgruntlement with uh, um, administration behavior, it's 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 certainly not a resigning in protest kind of thing. They they haven't put out any uh, public statements since we've kind of tried to. Uh, um, you know, sort of move policy one way or the other on their way out the door like we saw with uh, um, advisory committee members resigning after the uh, adhelm decision. obviously the uh, um, the trade-off always with sort of kind of a situation where you're uh, dissatisfied with how a uh, an organization that you're part of is uh, is operating is if you do leave, you can you know make a big you know, point in your departure, but then you sort of no longer have a seat at the table and uh, you know it's this is again, uh, um, speculation on my part because we do not have anything uh, um, publicly as to uh, um, uh, what's going on uh, here. But, uh, you know, if they do, you know, believe, obviously, strongly in vaccines, they may just uh, can't countenance the uh, um, or just, you know, sort of, you know can't tolerate it on a personal levels. So we're going kind to of perhaps, uh, you know, how things are uh, um, going in terms of, sort of kind of the uh, uh, the more uh, um, high level decision making on uh, um, those uh um uh timetables you were talking about uh Derek but they also don't want to you know become a uh a lightning rod for uh, uh you know sort of kind of anti-vaccine uh, propaganda so they don't uh, they don't want to sort of say anything bad about the uh the administration and again that uh, um is not something we have uh, um we have heard uh, um you know, sort of on the uh um, uh, um but uh, it's a uh, it's certainly uh, um you know seems a uh, um Seems a possibility, so it's a, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation all around.
1: Well, the other thing um, that I guess is kind of interesting is they're not retiring right tomorrow or even right, right. a yeah. week from today, and so they'll actually still, you know, seem like they'll be there to influence to some degree um, some of the key decisions, like Pfizer's. Um, a supplemental biologics application for a booster for its COVID vaccine, perhaps the timing of their departures, maybe it's not clear how much influence they'll have on the final decision, again, around COVID vaccines for under 12. But I do wonder, like, how much of that dynamic impacts, like, how much they're willing to say right now about why they are or aren't leaving, <laughs> why they're leaving, exactly.
0: And- well, and the other thing is, and that's actually a really good segue for the, sec- for the next story, but um, the, 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 it's not like the, these are the only, you know, it, it looking, going back to the, just the, the pressure of the pandemic, FDA has already admitted that there are problems with the rank and file with retention and, and so forth, where people are just saying I've had enough and are, you know, moving on to other, you know, to whether it's retirement or another or job in industry or academia or somewhere else. So, you know, it, it could... Again, we don't know the answer, just like you know Mattis, Mattis said. But you know, I, I wouldn't discount the the pressure that the pandemic is putting on the agency in terms of you know affecting decisions like you know decisions related to careers and and so forth. Now we're going to move on to the COVID 19 vaccine booster shot debate. Opinions seemingly vary on whether most people. Well, most people need them right now, and the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee is going to become the latest federal body to consider this issue. Sarah, you looked into this as well as the booster shot issue more broadly for us.
1: Right. So, FDA announced late yesterday um, afternoon they are going to hold a advisory committee meeting to look at Pfizer's um, supplemental application. Um, It's on September 17th, which is the Friday before the Monday of which the White House had said they would like to begin, you know, kind of offering boosters to people eight months after their initial COVID Um, series pending, of course, FDA and CDC approval. So it seems like the FDA is trying to, like, get this in and just in time, um, of course, CDC would need to meet potentially over the weekend. Then, if they were going to have, you know, a, a potential approval ready to go um, by the next week, um, the tension here is that there's still a lot of questions out there about, you know, whether boosters are needed and or what the what boosters offer in terms of protection, and then how to balance that between between the need for large swaths of the U.S. population as well as large swaths of the global population to get their first shots. Um, and so one key like scientific sort of stumbling block here is that we don't have a proven correlate of protection for these vaccines, um, we, but the companies are essentially using this sort of surrogate type data lab data looking at antibody levels and so forth to support their applications. So Pfizer isn't submitting a study that says, if we give you a third shot, you know, your risk of being hospitalized or getting severe COVID goes down or, you know, there's like... and, you know, it's much easier for the FDA to kind of clear an application with this kind of surrogate antibody data that giving a third shot, you know, booster your antibodies if we have clear evidence that, you know, X antibody level correlates with a level of protection that really indicates, you know, you're protected from severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And there's certainly been a push um, to by scientists to study this. NIH told me they have a number of um sort of study results they're trying to kind of publish in a letter shortly um and you know it seems like we're kind of like getting closer to having an idea of how this all works but we're still not quite there and for many reasons you know some scientists believe you just can't make regulatory decisions off this data yet so it's a bit complicated and the fda is obviously in a tight spot um so it'll be interesting to see how the advisory committee feels about the level of data that's submitted The other thing that before FDA made this announcement, um, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices met earlier this week to talk more generally about boosters, and they didn't seem quite as enthusiastic about the White House, at least in terms of boosting like everybody in the U.S. who's already been vaccinated with COVID. Their main point was basically you would want to boost if you knew you were going to really increase people's protection from severe disease, death, the really bad outcomes. And so far, the the data seems to indicate that, yes, some people seem to have waning protection from infection, but not necessarily from these bad outcomes. So, they really want to think about like, are there targeted populations that are losing their protection from these bad outcomes, and maybe that's who we want to prioritize. But they don't seem eager to um, prioritize everybody, particularly because they said, you know, we they re- we really need to prioritize first shots for people because at the end of the day, that could be more protective for the entire global population as a whole.
0: Yeah, th- this is a I, I you yeah, know th- this is one of those decisions that like you know, Solomon would have trouble with. I mean, I, I did, I, I have, I honestly have no idea what, what to think about. I used to, you know, I, I could, un- I understand the people need to get the primary series before we worry about boosting argument. I understand about the, you know, protections waiting. We need to, we need to boost so we don't lose all the, the gain, you know, the, all the gains we've already made, but yeah, yeah, i uh, I'm I'm lost here, and 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 to add to the fun, EMA came out with a statement this morning saying that boosters for the general population aren't necessary yet. So you know, it just I, I just I don't you know I I wish this was an e- you know an easy thing to kind of reach a consensus on at least I mean you know or at least for you know I think most I think there is consensus that um, immunocompromised people need a third shot, but you know I, I honestly I'm I'm just, I I just don't, I don't know what, I don't know what to think. I don't know what, I don't know how to to deal with this problem.
2: Yeah, it's It's, a, a, as as you were saying, uh, Derek, one of these, uh, uh, you know, the the frustrations of science is that you you don't have all the data you want, and yet uh, you can't just kind of, uh, you know, be satisfied that you've uh, tried to gather it. You have to make a, you know, a a real world decision and. you know, sort of uh, base that on sort of what we have, which is uh, imperfect and uh, very, uh, very frustrating to have to sort of make these uh, these tough calls. Um, you know, I was struck by the uh, EMEA's uh, comment. It kind of reminded me of what uh, um, the uh, the Biden administration said in July when uh, you know Pfizer announced its uh, um, its booster uh, um, you know uh, uh, submission uh, plans, and uh, uh, that was a very curt statement saying. Uh, um, you know, there's going to be, uh, um, uh, you know, saying that, like, you know, we, there's no evidence for boosters yet. People should focus on, uh, getting vaccinated and then to kind of, what was it, uh, you know, basically sort of 10 weeks later, they come up with this, uh, this plan saying, you know, boosters for all, uh, you know, starting in, uh, um, starting in September. So just sort of kind of, uh, remind me very much of the, uh, discussions around masks where we're sort of kind of, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, the, uh, 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 the government was trying to sort of downplay them, you know, because they were worried about shortages and now uh um you know they're they're very much part of the uh, um part of the emphasis and we're sort of kind of uh, you know we could see a similar, similar journey that in the uh, EU from uh we don't need boosters to you sure you sure should get them uh, as we saw in the US on uh on boosters and uh, um and masks as uh, as well. But go ahead Sarah I really like I jumped to jump over you.
1: You know, I, I don't forget what point I was going to make there, but um, your point about, right, like sort of this communication um, issue in terms of how, you know, at federal, you know, regulators sort of evolving over time. One other thing that was pointed out to me yesterday by an, immuno- by an immunologist is that FDA throughout the pandemic at various times has kind of warned against using antibody testing <laughs> to um kind of measure your level of, you know, protection from um from the vaccines. They've also, I think, kind of discouraged people from doing that to get a sense of like, did I have COVID and do I have protection because of that? Um and this person seemed to feel like that was a little hypocritical, given now how they want to rely on this antibody data potentially to make regulatory decisions. I, I pushed a little bit on, well, you know, this. I, my sense was those warnings were kind of on a very like individual basis. You know, you average Americans shouldn't go out, don't really need to go out, or shouldn't go out and get one of these tests and kind of use it to make an assessment of your right, your protection, <laughs> given what we know. But that maybe on a population. Level, you know, scientists can make broader determinations on this, these kind of, this kind of data, and they sort of understood that to a degree, but said that in some ways, um, for researchers like himself who are trying to work on, you know, figuring out correlates of protection and so forth, they felt like that those announcements actually hurt their ability to recruit people into studies because the main benefit of somebody, you know, participating would be to get that actual knowledge, and if FDA doesn't want them to be given it, it um, creates disincentives for the research. So I thought that was interesting, um, just because there's a lot of things to square um, in this debate. The other thing I um, was going to say before is there's this tension around, like you guys said, that we have this imperfect data, and when do you make a decision, and while, you know, there were certainly a number of people at the ACIP meeting that felt like, you know, right now we're we're strongly protected from severe outcomes. You know, we can't, um, at, we're not at a point where we can like prevent every COVID infection. That's just not a, um, a realistic pandemic response at the moment. There was a, a, some people that also pointed out though, that like, you don't want to, pull the trigger on boosters too late, right? You don't want to, it's, it might not be the best thing to wait until we see a ton of, you know, people losing that, that protection from severe disease, from hospitalization, um, because that could be problematic as well. So it's that balancing point of how do you make that decision at the right moment and get people vaccinated before, you know, we cause sort of harm.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, I I mean, when they, when that announcement first came down, I mean, the first thing I did was look back at my card and started and I kind of figured out like, okay, I think I'm going to be probably around the end of the year. I'm going to have to go in and get my, my booster shot, assuming this all continues on as we expect it will. But yeah, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm still, I, I still don't know. I I don't envy the, I don't envy the people who have to make these calls. <laughs> Another kind of, another interesting question here is what happens if the fda advisory committee says we don't need a booster right now <laughs> I mean, uh, then, you'll ha- then well but i mean the fda can is not bound by that decision they could they could still approve it or they could approve it and then acip could say great it's approved from when we need it we don't need it right now you know, that's fine. But, you know, then, I mean, we're just adding to the confusion. I don't know.
1: Right. I mean, I think that that's where you go back to the Biden administration kind of getting out in front ahead of FDA and CDC here and kind of saying, we have a booster plan. This is what we're going to do. But fine print, the FDA and CDC have to say it's okay first. What happens if, you know, any at any point (laughs) in this process, they don't quite agree. Um, I, I just think there's no way that plays out well in the public's mind, right? Yeah. I mean, they're going to lose some amount of credibility. People are going to be confused. They're not going to know who to trust. Um, certainly, if, you know, an advisory committee, particularly if it's, you know, incredibly lopsided, you know, it's a Fifteen to zero vote against boosters versus you know a mix like nine to eight. I think an FDA goes against them. That's going to create you know there's just a lot of tensions here and it's um, probably overall not helpful for the public response because people just won't know who to trust. And we know that vaccination and public health here is an issue where you really need to have you know trust and confidence of people that you're making th- the right decisions. So I think this this whole White House getting out ahead. Is um, going to create a lot of p- problems in the r- long run. I know they've been saying, oh, well, we just want to kind of prepare people for what's to come and make sure the supply chains are set up. But I think it's a bit different to say, you know, we're tracking the data. We think these might be necessary at some point. So we're, you know, behind the scenes, we're making sure when we know it definitely is necessary, we're like ready to go versus to say, we're ready to go on September 20th. <laughs> I mean, I was listening to a news story yesterday from NPR and it was a really fascinating science heavy story kind of talking about why we don't, you know, people maybe are freaking out a little bit too much about the antibody um, levels dropping and talking about all the el- other elements of the immune system and how it works and, you know, how we may be just fine. Um, But the initial, like, intro to the story was, you know, the Biden administration basically is going to be giving boosters on September 20th. There wasn't (laughs) a caveat. And Mm -hmm. even at the ACIP meeting, they said that in the South, doctors are already, um, you know, trying to boost healthcare providers, given the big outbreaks there, even hospitalized patients. They took the announcement kind of as, like, it was guaranteed September 20th. And they're thinking, well, we're in the heat right now with this Delta outbreak. So let's just start now. And then it turns out based on everything CDC has said in recent weeks, that um, there's some liability issues that doctors may have from doing this early because it's kind of goes against the CDC provider agreements for administering the vaccine. And you know, they this person at the ACIP was pretty angry because she felt like this lack of clarity from the administration really put doctors in an unfair position where you know they were probably trying to do the right thing and then put them at a liability risk
0: well and and there was i thought that they they aren't sure you could still boost too soon right i mean if you, if you're just giving shots like after a couple of weeks i mean that you know that's not helping you that's and, and i think they i mean they even said that well i don't remember off everything entirely but you have to kind of hit that window and they and I'm, I'm not sure they even know what the window is yet. I think it's, you know, it's pretty wide at the moment.
2: I'm gonna uh, go out on a limb, Derek, to answer your question about uh, uh, what happens if the, the advisory committee uh, does not uh, uh, endorse boosters. I I would imagine a near unanimous vote for boosters, uh, just given all the anti-vaccine dynamics uh, going on and uh, increasing concern about sort of uh, that that I, I I think for most people also sort of kind of uh, um, bite their tongue to a uh, a large degree once you're kind of asked the uh, ask the formal question and uh, um, and endorse it but uh, that's just my uh, speculation on uh, on that
1: I, I I don't know I'm not sure sure I'm as confident as you Matt. well especially if you're using that logic because. I think what some people are worried about is that the need for boosters is actually going to ramp up the anti-vax sentiment. They're going to say, like, which is something I think um, the White House has been keenly aware of all along, which is there's this concern of, oh, okay, you said we need two shots. Now you're saying we need three shots, or these shots aren't really that good. And that's been used, I think, at, in, at points in this um, debate of by anti-vaxxers saying, look, these shots don't even work that well. Why? So why should I get it? And I think So I don't necessarily think voting for boosters is is going to be seen by everybody as a key step that's going to reduce anti-vaccine sentiment in any way.
2: Uh, We will uh, Sarah and I will settle terms on this bet. uh (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll have to report back on the later podcast. That's what's, what's at the stake at the uh, advisory committee vote?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in any case, we're, we're definitely going to be watching the meeting and and every comment is going to be dissected probably word for word and clause by clause to see, you know, to try and figure out what everyone was really trying to say. So it in any ca- in, in any case, in about three weeks it'll be it'll be very interesting. Finally, today we're going to look at a new FDA safety restriction that will impact the rheumatoid arthritis and inflammation treatment markets. The agency on September 1st announced that four Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors, Zeljans, Zeljans XR, Illumiant, and Rinvoc will have updated boxed warnings after a review of post-market safety data found increased risks of heart attacks, stroke, cancer, blood clots, and death. In addition, the agency wants their use limited to patients who cannot tolerate one or more tumor necrosis factor or TNF blockers. Bush has significantly reduced the use of the products, which currently are approved for RA, ulcerative colitis, and other indications. The move comes after a longer wait than expected for the safety trial to be completed. It had been scheduled to be done in 2019 and the final report issued in 2020, but top-line data was not released until January this year after some event rates were lower than expected. At the same time, five pending applications, including one NDA, also could be affected. Their user fee goals were delayed while the agency completed its review of the data. Matt, can you put this in a little context for us? I mean, how, how big a deal is this for you know for the for the market for the FDA? Pretty sure. Much?
2: Obviously, obviously, uh, you know, these are uh, uh, big companies. Uh, um, you know, an emerging class that's being treated for a lot of uh, um, you know fairly wide ranging. Uh, indication so it's uh, um, you know it's not good news either for, for patients or for uh, uh, for marketers that sort of this uh, the safety uh, signal here and uh, um, obviously sort of kind of uh, um, the most important thing is making sure that patients get the uh, uh, the best possible medicine for themselves what I was struck by is uh, um, the interplay between sort of kind of uh, um, you know the various uh, safety mechanisms that uh, FDA has and sort of how they uh, um, how they worked out in this case. Uh, you know, you think about, uh, um, you know, what happens when a drug gets approved. And it's, you know, very usual that sort of, kind of that there's a, uh, a post-marketing study that's part of that. And, uh, um, you know, in many cases, uh, um, if there's sort of safety concerns from the uh, initial batch of data, there's a, uh, a REMS as well. And uh, that's what happened in this case. And, uh, you know, if you want to look at it from, uh, um, one perspective, you know, things played out uh, as well as they could. Through kind of the, the uh, uh, this product got on the market, uh, subsequent products also got on the market, and uh, you know, additional data was gathered through sort of kind of in a uh, you know wide-ranging uh, long-term trial. And uh, you know, all the while, uh, saved, thanks to the safety mechanisms, were kind of the uh, the potential risks were uh, were communicated to uh, patients and uh, um, physicians and other uh, healthcare workers. And now uh, that the data is in, a a different decision has been made, and, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll have different prescribing decisions based on uh, based on that. But, uh, you know, given the sort of the uh, the firestorm about uh, um, accelerated approval and, uh, you know, sort of FDA's uh, um, approach to safety, uh, um, I just thought it was worth uh, talking about. Uh, um, this obviously was not an accelerated approval, and, uh, um, you know, there's different, uh, um, different data dynamics at play. But, uh, you know, if you have to wait for almost a decade to sort of get an answer to a uh, a question you had at the uh, initial uh, approval is: Is that the right decision? And uh, you know, during that decade, it seems like uh, entirely possible that uh, our really for nine years uh, uh, I was rounding up. Um, that it seems uh, entirely possible that uh, um, you know some uh, um, some patients were harmed because of this product. That sort of they would have been better off, uh, you know, perhaps taking with uh, TNF inhibitors. And uh, you know, on the other side of that coin, that there were you know patients that probably you know. Uh, for uh, for whom the existing uh, um, RA uh, treatments did not work, and this was a, a great option for them, and it was important to uh, to have it out there and uh, and get uh, um you know get get better uh, um, to a degree because of uh, because of this product. So it's a uh, um, it's you know, as we were talking you know throughout the uh, um, podcast, just for sort of the uh, the hard calls that uh, you know FDA and uh, everyone else has to make here, and this seems like another one of them, and uh, um. It was just uh, just interesting how it played out to me.
0: Yeah, it, it's also interesting that they they that they had a REMS. They they started out with the REMS, and then and the REMS worked perfectly, and so they got rid of it. And you know, and then and now we're coming back with, okay, we have all these. You know, we're going to do something else to deal with you know with the safety. I, it it you know it, it it just seems kind of like a I don't know. It, not like a straight line kind of evolution here, at least on the on the safety side, and maybe that's just because of, like you said, the you know the rigors of science, and and this is how you know we pull data in as we get it. We can't just magically make it appear, and you know things change over time, and and as we learn more and and things like that. But uh, yeah, it that that was that that was interesting to me as well, and you know, I mean, I guess that you know. One of the things we mentioned in the piece was that you know another rem certainly is possible here. We don't we don't know what they're going to do. They didn't uh, the FDA didn't make a any didn't kind of give any hints on how they're going to handle this going forward if they're if they're going to do anything else. But I mean, is there something else they could do to you know to on the safety side for these products?
2: You know, I think it, you know one of the things that sort of kind of led to uh, the whole rems uh, mechanism in the in the first place was this for of kind of uh, frustration that FDA had been feeling. Uh, um, That's sort her of kind of uh, constant label updates and changes, which sort of kind of don't uh, don't move the needle in terms of uh, um, physician and uh, you know healthcare provider and uh, patient uh, awareness on uh, um, on this stuff. And uh, you know, in this case, it seems like the, uh, um, uh, Pfizer did a uh, um, did a great job getting that message out via the Rams. And uh, um, you know, what uh, would be interesting to see is her sort of kind of uh, how um, you know prescribing uh, you know. Sort of, uh, uh, changes because of this, and through kind of whether it's a a, a signal that perhaps uh, you know more aggressive communication uh, you know is needed, or uh, um, or what happens. I mean, the uh, the 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 problem is, of course, through kind of knowing through kind of uh, how to uh, um, get this uh, this this stuff through kind of uh, um, you know sort of above the uh, the general noise of through kind of everything else that uh, um, people have to think about as they're uh, as they're making their healthcare decisions.
0: Yeah, I know one of the things as I was reading the old uh, the old REMS communication plan was one of the things they had to do was present the risks uh, of the products at um, various like scientific conferences as like, you know, I think it was like as a as like a poster, like presentations or whatever. And, you know you know when like thousands of people are wandering around a convention hall as you and I and Sarah you've done this too the la one of the few things that you you are able to ignore is all the posters <sighs> that are everywhere so you know you wonder you know that and the ads and and we've all heard stories about how the the the, the dear health care provider letters are are one of like a stack of thousands of letters that all these these doctors get every day and and how they you know, they, they they some they a lot of times get ignored or just get glazed over because they have thousands of pieces of mail that they have to go through and, and so forth. So, you know, you, it, this getting this the message out is, is difficult.
1: Yeah, it'll be even I mean, it, it'll be even interesting to see. I think there's speculation, right, that this is a negative commercial impact for these companies, but that make these drugs. But, you know just because the FDA has issued this warning and directive doesn't necessarily mean patients that have been on these products for a decade will switch or that doctors will push them to switch. So, um, you know, in in the real world, there's like sort of a, there's a big disconnect between (laughs) how closely we're following this and how this gets translated down to doctors and patients and their individual decision making.
0: Yeah, another uh, commercial of, sorry, go go ahead there. Oh, I was gonna say, and I mean, Pfizer even said that in um, you know in their statement for our story was that you know this is this this is the the Jak inhibitor with the most you know clinical data you know uh, of all of them. So you know we we have a much better sense of where it should be used and which patients should get it. So you know if anything, you're dialing down on you know into drilling down into the patient populations that you want to have it.
2: Yeah, the other sort of. Uh, um impact that we haven't talked about as much is for kind of the uh, the pending applications of other uh, uh, jack inhibitors and for sort kind of what might happen with uh, with them and uh, um, especially given that they're kind sort of looking at uh, you know different perhaps uh, um, uh, you know indications we you know we had some uh, um, discussion in the story which uh, will include in the uh, uh, the show notes about for sort of kind of the, the dermatology indications are kind of could, could face more scrutiny because uh, they're often uh, um, you know, have sort of a, a higher threshold just sort of given the uh, the dynamics of sort of, kind of the uh, the risk benefit there. So we uh, um, really need to watch what FDA does uh, um, with the uh, with the applications that it's been reviewing and sort for kind of uh, uh, pause while they sort of, kind of uh, you know wait for and digest this uh, um, this data here. So.
0: Yeah, there even had been speculation that an advisory committee might be convened to kind of look at the class wide you know issues here to you know see to see if it's worth um, you know, if there's some kind of, you know, broad safety, uh, you know, conclusion they can make and, and maybe set, figure out what to do. So, yeah, definitely be, uh, you know, something to watch going forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingary with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.